Families play a big part in Elizabeth McCracken's latest story collection, The Souvenir Museum. Mothers pine for lost children and try to recover broken bonds in unlikely but unforgettable ways. Sons and daughters negotiate ways to endure the families they're born or brought into. In every single one of these 12 stories, everyone experiences some kind of loss as they journey closer to enduring love. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to Elizabeth McCracken from her home in Austin, Texas, about the story collection, The Souvenir Museum. Had he made his bed, or had somebody made it for him, the white sheet folded with precision over a sky-blue blanket, white pillows that had been plumped and smoothed. Sadie herself had not made her own bed in years. It was one of the most liberating things about being a grown-up. Jack, though, was a maker of beds, a love letter you mailed to yourself in the morning that arrived at the end of the day. They never should have married, probably. They couldn't know all the ways their marriage would be mixed. She was punctual. He was late. She would never willingly drink a gin and tonic. She had a sweet tooth. He liked bitter greens and smoked haddock and oversalted his food. He didn't drive, and she didn't like to. He was, he would have denied it, gregarious. She was a misanthrope of the purest kind, one who didn't let on but cloaked her misanthropy with manners. He didn't mind a bit of thievery, restaurant salt and pepper shakers he took a fancy to, flowers from other people's gardens, while she was a rigid moralist about ill-gotten gains, returned every extra bit of money, corrected sales clerks who rang her up wrong. They were both cowards. She was an only child. He had three sisters. He liked horror movies. She liked dirty jokes. He was deep down a prude. They were both bad with money. All the dives where they drank in those days are gone. That's how old they are now. I just love it. Having come through the book and read the stories about these recurring characters in five of the stories in this collection, Jack and Sadie, just the, uh, the, the radical compression here, um, the, the differences between the two, and it really starts with their difference in, in terms of who makes the bed and who doesn't care about making the bed. I just, I just love it. It, it just nails the difference. I think I know these people. Um, so thank you for, for reading that. But I, I have to say, I found so much in this collection to bind the stories as one whole. Um, I cannot imagine any one of these stories not being here. But the five Jack and Sadie stories, um, really, I mean, it, it's, it's, all, it's so interesting to me how they work in this collection, but then the alchemy within um, and among the other stories. Um, for those of us who read short story collections in order, <laughs> um, they are the first people we meet. In the opening pages, they're headed to the Irish wedding. I, I love movies about weddings, and I really love stories about them. And Jack and Sadie are these characters that we see in these stories. The first thing we learn in the very first story is that Jack does not drive. 
And in the last story, we learned that Sadie doesn't particularly like to drive. I, I just found that so interesting that in the first story, it's late, they're tired, they don't really know the area where they're going, it's an unfamiliar space. And they are to become, if temporarily, part of a space and a group that's not entirely sold on the idea of the two of them as a couple. That story just sets up so much for us about their relationship. Um, so I had to wonder about Jack and Sadie. They're so real to me. Where, where did these two people come from? I made them up of that. Um, I and I'm so delighted to hear you say that that they seem real. Partly because I had never, I'd never written connected short stories before, and it's always been my my feeling that one of the big differences between short stories and novels is sort of the shape and size of the character. So it was interesting thinking about character in a, a form or forms that was sort of halfway between the two of them, because they do feel much more dimensional to me than the characters of mine who appear only in one story, who, who we get to know for the purposes of a very, you know, circumscribed set of, of events and time. And so I feel like I was sort of getting to know them on the fly. That is Jack and Sadie while I was writing those stories. I wrote them pretty quickly, all five of them, and then revised them uh, together. And I'm, I'm married to an English person. Uh, I'm married to a, another writer whose name is Edward Carey. We are really in no way these characters, but they take the same vacations that we do. <laughs> um, and a lot of events and trips that, that uh, I ended up using. Um, and I was sort of surprised by how different these, they're not, they're not emotionally autobiographical at all, but several of the stories are quite factually autobiographical, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, these characters are just so rich. I mean, the sto this story veers where it must to the, the kinds of exchanges that a couple can have freely and without judgment, you know, between Jack and Sadie, but that before Jack's family or Lenny's family, um, you know, scatology is just one of those things you either get it or you don't, you either laugh about it or you're stony faced and disapproving. But at the heart of the, of the matter it, it, where the story goes, um, is it's not a language barrier. Um, they're not being a euphemism like cut the cheese it, <laughs> that translates in, in England or, or Ireland, but also they're not being euphemisms at all in the lexicon of Jack's family, it seems like. And poor Sadie. I mean, they don't even use the same name for Jack. Yeah. So I just love that idea that they don't speak the same language metaphorically speaking, and that doesn't necessarily mean the relationship is doomed. So for a first story, I thought, wow, this is a test for this couple. Um, and I, I, just, I just love this idea. And also the, the idea that uh, the whole ventriloquism side of uh, Jack that we also see in the story is Splinter um, and in Two Sad Clowns, which you read from. Can you talk about 
uh, Jack a little bit. And uh, he's just a very, very rich character to me. Um, thanks. And sure, I laughed when you said a test for the couple because I thought you meant a test for the reader. And I do think I put that story at the start because um, it wasn't the first of the stories that I wrote to sort of say, well, if you can get through this, if you can keep up <laughs> with with the um, keep up is the wrong term. But if if you're not put off by this story, then then we'll be fine together. Um, and so, yeah, Jack is a character who his parents are English and he has three uh, older sisters who are all English and he's English too, but he was born in the United States and raised in the United States for during a period when his, when his parents were living in, in upstate New York. And so he, he's sort of a, a person without a country exactly, or with two countries, which seemed to me maybe related to, I'm, I'm making it sound like I have this big overarching philosophical reason why I wrote about ventriloquism. <laughs> but the fact is I just really like ventriloquism and it delighted me to take a character who I hadn't planned to make into a, a ventriloquist or an amateur or aspiring ventriloquist. Um, that's, that is sadly how many of the decisions in my <laughs> short story uh, process are made is that, I think but this would just be really fun to write about. It'd be fun to write about ventriloquism and dummies um, and to think about them and think about the ways in which there's something joyful about them and something deeply upsetting about artificial people and sort of upsetting about performers who are, say, making terrible and mean jokes and pretending they're not by blaming the dummy at the end of their arm. Oh, and you know what I love about what you're saying is that when we do see the puppets in Two Sad Clowns, and it's not I don't think it's giving too much away to say this if anybody out there who's listening hasn't read the book, it's really sort of the origin story of, of the coupledom between Jack and Sadie, and it does involve, in a way, puppets. I, I just love the idea of Jack being able to have this other identity at first, but... It's compl- It's totally stripped away. I mean, he he never has to stand behind it when he first meets her, and you know, and you just see it's all just so stripped away because that then you know they encounter this guy at the bar who they have to help, and that is so revealing for the reader um, about their characters, about their personalities, about the way that they engage with each other and interact with each other. And they've just met. Um, So yeah, I like this. And I like, you know, I wondered about even um, Mistress Mickle from Mistress Mickle All at Sea. And, and then the, you know, and then the ventriloquism too. I I love these sort of, they seem like very, sort of eclectic occupations for the characters, but they're really not. I mean, somebody has to do it. People do. People do these <laughs> things. <laughs> so why not? It, I, it was just, you're right. The word is delightful. It was just really a lot of fun. Um, I want to talk to you about the mother stories here too. I want listeners who have not yet read the stories to find this book and get punched in the stomach like I was when I read Birdsong from the Radio. And I want them to meet 
Leonora who eats her children. But I want you to talk about the that mother's story, and then I'm, I'll ask you about another one. But tell me about that particular story, Birdsong from the Radio. Oh, sure. And I also, sorry to keep jumping back to the thing you just said, but but thank you for saying that about the occupations, because I always, I'm always interested in what my characters do for a living. And I do, I do always think, well, you know, somebody's got to be a children's entertainer. You might as well have a job that's sort of interesting. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there was a show when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in Laredo, but there was a show from San Antonio called Captain Gus. And he hosted this, you know, cartoon hour of Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry. And um, my husband, when he was, I don't know, five or six or seven or something, was in that little show. He was one of the kids who was in this little bleachered area, bleacher area. And they answered questions like, what's your name and how old are you? And, you know, they were Captain Gus's mateys. So and today we have a picture of Captain Gus hanging in our hallway. I totally understand. <laughs> this is the best news I've heard all day. I love that. <laughs> he was a minor celebrity, you know, back in the day, Captain Gus. We that is so cool. It's so funny. Um, but yeah, somebody has to do it and people do. And so, yeah, uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that. Yeah, that makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, now I can talk about, I think, uh, inarguably the most depressing story in the collection. Um, which I'm fond of. Me too. Uh, Me too. The, it, the, it, and that's the oldest story in the collection. And I wrote it uh, as a commission of a kind. That is a wonderful writer and editor named Kate Bernheimer was putting together an anthology called XO Orpheus, which were rewrites of, of myths. And I decided that I would write about Lamia, who's a mythical creature a woman whose children die and she turns into an animal made of up of other animals and it it's also partially inspired by the fact that when before I had children I I did not understand babies and children altogether probably and I really didn't understand mothers saying oh, look at that bottom. I just want to bite it. And once I had children, I became one of those mothers who bit her children. My <laughs> my children often jokingly say that every year my New Year's resolution should be that I should bite them less. Um, I mean, I bite them affectionately yeah. um, and not hard. Um, but that but that I like I did not understand that that there is something psychological in which you you joke with children about eating them up. And then there are awful stories and mythical stories about people who eat their children because it's also the most awful thing to contemplate. And there are fairy tales in which people eat their children. And I should say no actual children are eaten in the course of the story. (laughs) But I was really thinking about that sort of intersection of, I don't know, cannibalism and deliciousness and, um, and also what it means as happens in the story pretty early on to be a mother whose children are no longer living. I just, I understand what you're saying about it being the most depressing story. And it is, it, it is so gorgeous as a consequence. Um, 
simply because of everything you've just said. I mean, we don't even really have that. We know just enough about the children. We know that they are this little group of um, just absolutely ethereal, luscious <laughs> little beings that she can't keep her hands off of. She just loves them so much. And, you know, I was talking to, um, I interviewed Edward Hirsch about his book, A Hundred Poems to Break Your Heart. And these are amazing book, amazing, sad poems. And his point is, his point was, or one of his many points um, in that he made in our conversation was about, we feel less alone when we read something so tragic. And this is not to say that God forbid any one of us would ever experience what poor Leonora did. Um, but the, but there is beauty in in that. There is beauty in that grief. You know, he talk, uh, Edward Hirsch talked about, we don't just all buck up and get back into living and heal. He says that's a, a very sort of American and a very sort of immature approach to handling grief and that we have to let people move through just this bottomless pit of despair. Let them, let people do what they must do and hope that they survive the worst of it. And of course, we're at a juncture in Leonore's processing of this terrible thing that happens. I, th I think early on, months in, as we see, but, you know, th there's no accounting for how any one of us would deal with the worst thing that happened to us. Um, and so I, I just see something so beautiful in the way the teenagers who work at the bakery respond to her and they give her the bread. That moment in the story was so powerful to me that this sort of nameless teenager that works at the bakery and is part of this scene um, where we, we are seeing Leonora doing something kind of strange and then it's all about a scene of compassion so that's oh, thank you that's 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 what that story uh does for me in in a way that um a walk through human heart is is this other story about this mother in austin recalling the days when she was a young mother and now she's in desperate search for a gift not for her new grant about to be granddaughter but for her daughter do you want to talk about that story sure that's my that's actually the the first thing i ever wrote that took place in texas is it wow you made me miss austin i lived in austin for a time and this is oh the grackles but anyway <laughs> let you talk about i really i love the grackles they're so upsetting and beautiful um yes. and Maybe that's my my basic aesthetic is I like things that are upsetting and beautiful, slightly unnerving. You made them so, I, I don't know. I think you're one of the few people I know who can make us care about grackles. You know, it's just like, <laughs> they used to be the bane of life, but no, not anymore. But anyway. <laughs> I even like the fact that there were so many of them <sighs> and that they, I, there's the HB, the HEB down the street for me at, at dusk is filled with grackles and it always looks like the end of the world as they swoop <laughs> around together. They're quite prehistoric. 
and also mechanical prehistoric and steampunk at the same time. <laughs> um, so I wanted to write something about Austin and this, it's the story in the book that probably changed the most over the, the time that I was writing it. Cause it was originally very short and there was almost no backstory. And, um, and so I, I wrote about the various vintage shops in Austin and, and Grackles and, I also, one of the running jokes that I had with uh, my beloved late mother is that she refused to buy me a Barbie doll. And in fact, this is in the story. This is is emotionally autobiographical and it's in the story. The, the, the mother and daughter in this book, in this story are nothing like me and my mother. But she did once say to me, you know, if you'd really wanted a Barbie doll, if you'd really bothered me about it, I would have gotten you one. <laughs> and I was 30 and I gasped with betrayal when she told me that. <laughs> so that's the, that's the, you know, the major wound of my childhood. And so I decided to write a short story about it. Um, and I, I wrote a draft that was, that only took place in Austin with none of the story behind it. And then it felt like it was, it was almost like a little Austin travelogue with not enough ballast behind it. So that's when the the Thea's friend Florence came into it and her son. And I, I, I started thinking a lot about, I mean, maybe too much of my, the things I write are about sort of the, the impossibility of, of parenthood and the things that you want to get right and the things you feel like you can't get right. And knowing that no matter what happens, the narrative going forward is not the same as the narrative looking back is going to be. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, that's so profound. It, it makes total sense. Oh my gosh. Yes. And, and all because of a baby alive and, I mean, I've known about baby live dolls for so long, but it it occurred to me, wow, that's a really odd name <laughs> for <It's so> a boy. <laughs> I also really wanted a baby alive doll. <laughs> yeah. And one of one of the nicest compliments I ever get is every now and then I write about something that's real and somebody says, How did you come up with that? And I have to admit that it's not out of my imagination. And somebody asked me how did you come up with Baby Alive? I said, <laughs> I could show you the ads on YouTube. It's uh, this very upsetting doll, and and that's what it's called. Yeah, and that's what we wanted our mothers to buy for us. <laughs> yes. But, but, you know, you say this very profound thing that you've shared, um, and the souvenir. So I haven't bought a souvenir in a very long time. In the before time, you know, there were these tchotchkes I could pick up, like, at an airport, you know, uh, <laughs> while I'm waiting for my connecting flight at one of these, like, ubiquitous airport newsstand places, a refrigerator magnet or something, just to prove I was in Denver or whatever. Right. In um, my childhood, souvenirs were absolutely necessary. And I felt like I was traveling to the zoo or you know, to some Texas coastal beach town just for the souvenir. Like there was so much writing on that shark tooth necklace, right? 
I feel like the characters in your stories, there's so much writing on some object, but like as a, almost like a, a metonymical thing even, like in this story the, of the with the baby alive, the characters after objects that were part of her past as a young mother. And there's this sort of like recovering that she's trying to do with her daughter. daughter. And the stakes are very high. Um, she's trying to close a loop or right a wrong or pay off a debt or I, I don't know. I don't know the right word, but something's weighing her down. And it, by obtaining this thing, she will lessen her burden. And you see this in the Souvenir Museum, that story, where the protagonist has to travel a great distance to give over this old watch to an old love of hers. And she has a little boy. And again, there's this idea of a souvenir, and, and maybe it's a more, much more pointed idea of a souvenir. Um, but she's there to accomplish something altogether different. But it's another mother, and it's and this time it's a young boy. And I don't know. I just I kept thinking about this idea of how you know how the stories are are so cohesive how they all connect with Jack and with Sadie and with Leonora and I just love the idea of how there's this object there's this thing in the middle of the story that we all are sort of looking at and it's not even about that thing it's not about the souvenir and I don't want to say anything so corny to Elizabeth McCracken like it's about the journey <laughs> but it's not about the souvenir but uh, the Souvenir Museum. Now, have you been to Legoland? I have, indeed. Uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that was pretty much my experience. Um, also, just thank you. Your, your, your reading is so generous and, and, and wonderful. Um, I have been to Legoland. It was terrible. <laughs> Uh, there's not a detail. I was there with a with both my kids and my husband and another family, and it was it be we soldiered on to try to to enjoy Legoland a bit longer than the characters in the story. Uh, I it's quite it's quite common for me to think, well, maybe I can do a sort of spiritual tax deduction <laughs> if I'm really miserable someplace. <laughs> Maybe I can get a short story out of it. Uh, I have to stop doing that because then when you do that, then all your stories, people catch on, I think. <laughs> if you, if I have another story, another story collection in which all the characters go to tourist traps and, <laughs> and I complain about not liking to be in crowds. But the, so the, the, the three tourist traps in that story are all real. And, uh, and I went to them. Legoland, the Souvenir Museum itself. That's a very accurate mm. description of a weird museum in Denmark, which I think I looked it up. I think maybe didn't make it through the pandemic. I will have, I will say, I don't think it's a, it's an enormous loss. <laughs> um, and then Odin's Odense is also an actual place where, in fact, it's the sort of thing I don't do in novels, but in short stories, I actually was at this place and listening to somebody, uh, a place in which people sort of uh, seem to be acting, you know, what would you call it actually? 
historical reenactment, but I walked into a hut and there was a woman in Viking clothing and she began to talk and I could not for the life of me tell what century she was supposed to be in. (laughs) And it was one of the most genuinely disorienting experiences (laughs) of my life. And then it turned out she was, she wasn't acting as though she was a Viking. She just was, she was a modern Danish woman, but in Viking clothing. (laughs) Well, I mean, you just bring these places to life now and you've obviously been to Schlitterbahn. Mm. I have been to Schlitterbahn many times, although only the one in Galveston. The place where the chlorinated air smelled of infection being held just at bay? That's it. (laughs) I've never been to Schlitterbahn in the summer. I've only been there uh, at New Year's or Thanksgiving. Oh, just like in in Robinson Crusoe at the water park. It's November, I think, yeah. And I have to say that a German-themed water park is something that people have also said, that doesn't exist. (laughs) Non-Texans are very confused about the idea of it, which truthfully didn't even uh, strike me as all that strange. Um, They would say, but there's not a sign that says Faust and Furious. And I said, say, there is 100% a sign saying Faust and Furious. I just, I felt like I was there. I felt like... Uh, sorry, I'm so sorry. I know, I just, I could smell it. I could, I, the whole thing, the, you know, the swim up bar and the Lost Boys, you know, bobbing around and <laughs> tormenting each other and the belly buttons, and, <laughs> you know, the whole spectrum of belly buttons. I mean, this story, yeah, and, there, and this is a very poignant story. I mean, this is a story that really, really moved me. Um, but also, there's so much humor. I mean, laugh out loud. I mean, and it's impossible to choose a, a favorite story. But one of the funnier ones that's also, you know, horrifically sad, but made me call my daughter and read excerpts to her over the phone is the story, It's Not You. Oh, our 20s, right? I mean, writing yes. about our 20s, it can only be not just a a sad story. I mean, what a tough decade. Um, but we just don't realize when we're in it that we're going to survive and totally rise above it and even kind of miss it <laughs> and then leave it well behind. Um, yeah. But that is such a, also just such a funny story. And it could only really be, I think, uh, a protagonist in her 20s. But I wanted to ask you, that's a first-person point-of-view story. Yeah. And you don't have that many uh, uh, that I've no. heard. I don't think there's any other one in the... I mean, your third per, I, I, You know, this is the book to study if you want to, for many, many reasons, if you want to be a short story writer. But I wanted to ask you why that one was first-person. It's... That's such a good question. Um, And such a good question. I don't instantly know the answer to it. I do feel like sometimes when you listen to interviews, people go, that's such a good question. And then they give an answer and you think, you didn't think that was a good question. You already knew the answer to it. Um, You weren't surprised by that at all. I think it might be partly, I mean, I, I, all of the short stories that I wrote or most of them when I was in my twenties were first person. And I wonder if 
there's a relationship to that. Um, I used to be primarily, I shouldn't say I used to be primarily a first person writer. I used to write primarily in the first person. And my first uh, book of stories was all first person. There was one third person. And my first two novels were both first person. And I'm writing for, uh, something first person now for the first time in a really long time. And um, I, I'm not exactly sure what I, what I, um, what I'm trying to get at when I switch uh, narrators, or what the difference in the effect is. I can't imagine. But I certainly it. know the characters in a different way when I write first person or third person. I probably know the characters when I'm writing third person better than I do my first person narrators. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I mean, the, I just love, I, I love, I do, I, how do I say this? You don't miss anything. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of like, it's it's not a, a matter of, oh, I wish this had been in first or, you know, whatever. But it just works so well in first. And it's not just because, um, it's mostly because of the of the main character. But um, how, you know what? That's such a good answer. <laughs> this idea that it's because she's in her 20s. I mean, it's, it sort of stands to reason. You know, I, I just, I like this answer. I, I think it makes a lot of sense that it, yeah. I'll, I'll add one other thing, which I was thinking of because I was talking about some of my favorite books that are in the first person. And I think a first person character has a deep wish to be known. And a third person character is sometimes known despite their own wishes and that that's the difference. Oh my gosh, that, that is, now that's a good answer, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> what, so you hold the James Michener Chair for Fiction at the University of Texas at Austin. Tell me, that was a very sort of writerly workshoppy thing that you just said. So tell me <laughs> about teaching writing over these recent pandemic months. How, how have you been? How have your students been? I think they've been good. I've only, I was teaching a, an undergraduate workshop when I, when the world shut down. So those were all students who I already knew. And then I was actually on leave and, and working on a book in the fall. And I, then I taught a novel, a graduate novel workshop in the spring. And it was immensely gratifying, partly because all of the students in the class they were working really seriously. They read each other's work with enormous attention and generosity. Um, and I also, I was, I um, supervised a couple of, of theses and, and got to see some of those students in person um, sitting outside on a hmm. back deck. I have to say, I cannot wait to teach in person again. Mm. I did not. A couple of my colleagues at one point were having a conversation and they said, oh no, I kind of like it. Now I, I, I like Zoom. And I thought, oh my God, what's wrong with me? Because <laughs> I loved reading my students' work and seeing them, but 
I I don't mind Zoom one-on-one conversations, but there's something about talking to a bunch of people and not being able to look somebody in the eye. That I yeah, I just hated it. I can yeah, something is lost. I mean, Zoom's been miraculous in many ways. It's just amazing how we just all you know, fell fell in and made it work, but yeah, something's definitely lost. And I imagine in the in the writing workshop space, boy, it's yeah, it's tough. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know that the students minded it. Yeah, I mean, that makes it sound like I dislike teaching the class, and I really, I really love teaching the class, and it was mm-hmm. it was very meaningful. I just am not going to miss. Okay, I'm I'm not going to miss the strangeness of looking at a somebody's tiny face on my screen thinking <laughs> you don't even know I'm looking at you. <laughs> well, so how has the writing gone too? I mean, we had the February weather event and the power outage. We had oh, a second impeachment, an insurrection. <laughs> I mean, so many things and the pandemic and just all of these crazy things converging at once. And I don't know, some writers have said to me on the podcast that, they, that, that they've done nothing but, you know, watch television or watch the news or binge watch something to take their mind off. Or some have said that they've done more writing than ever. Um, everybody's answer is really different. It's, it is interesting, but um, how has it impacted your writing? I feel like I I won't know until six months from now. I've done a fair amount of writing. I do think that the 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 thing about writings and writer writing and writers is that everybody is so completely different, and we all like to hear what other writers are doing because we suspect they're doing it the right way. And we also suspect they're doing it the wrong way and the way we're doing it is right. (laughs) And I have, I have friends who have gotten huge amounts of work done and friends who have found it impossible, impossible to work. And I completely understand both reactions. Um, I think because I was on leave, I put my head down in the fall. I don't think I got any writing done over the summer from, you know, from, March 13th, uh, which was the first day that my children's school was canceled until end of August when they went to online school, I didn't write. And then because I knew that I would be writhing with self-loathing if I wasted a semester off, I got a lot of work done in the fall. But I don't know. I'll be, I'll be interested to see in six months when I read what I've done, whether you could tell that I wrote it during the pandemic or whether it would be it'll be really weird to think that what I wrote, I was writing during the pandemic. I don't know. I don't know what fingerprints are going to be mm-hmm. going to be in the uh, in the concrete when it when it hardens up. So I said something earlier about it would be impossible to choose a favorite story from this collection. I mean, I, I, it's it's impossible. Um, and I've, you know, it, 
I changed my answer. I, I just, I don't know. I want to ask you, and I know it's a really unfair question, but when, you know, when people see me walking around with a, a short story collection, I still get asked, what's it about? You know, as if it were only about one thing. What are you reading? Oh, this short story collection called the Souvenir Museum. What's it about? So what's it about? What, what do you want um, our listeners who haven't yet read this book to know? What's it about? Or what's your favorite story that just really encompasses the whole what's it about? I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes. I've only written three short story collections. And I feel like in my... For my last collection, I could say, oh, this is my sentimental favorite. Um, or this is, and sometimes the one I like is the one, I only like it because it, it seems like it's nobody else's favorite. I, do, I think the collection is about being out of context, the way that travel is, and the way that arriving at your future in-law's house for the first time is about being completely out of context while you see your beloved suddenly in context or at least in a different context uh, and because of that I think maybe the Irish wedding is the most I don't know and was the emblematic story of the collection but yeah but I'm not sure I changed my mind about it but I see it's, your, it's the it's the it's a there it and Robinson Crusoe at the water park are both pretty cheerful stories, more cheerful stories than I usually write. So I'm fond of them for that reason. They both have pretty happy endings. Elizabeth McCracken, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was so much fun to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much, Yvette. And it was really just yeah, thank you for your for your generosity and um you describe my stories to me in a way that I, I'd like to think they are, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Elizabeth McCracken is the author of The Souvenir Museum. She's the author of six other books, including The Giant's House, a National Book Award finalist, and Thunderstruck and Other Stories, a winner of the Story Prize and long listed for the National Book Award. She holds the James Michener Chair for Fiction at the University of Texas at Austin. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.